Hello, and welcome to Live from Bar Save. I'm Rachel. I'm Chad. And today we have a very special guest. We have Lou Prosperi, who was a first edition Earth Dawn creator, as well as he's now, he's an author, and he does a lot of interesting work, and we're going to talk to him about that today. And also something that, what's the thing that you and Lou have in common besides Earth Dawn? The mouse. The mouse. Off the charts Disney fans. Welcome, Lou. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Thanks for, very much for having me. So we, we've been trying to put this together for a while now. We've had multiple uh, scheduled and canceled, and then, okay, what about next week? Oh, wait, no, I'm busy. So it's good to finally uh, have the planets align here and we get it done. So Yeah, and you had to go break your foot. I did. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, and then I had to go, according to our youngest, break my hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were close at one point, and then, right, that stuff happened. But it's all good, you know. Yeah. We'll get to it eventually. And... uh as I, I suspect a lot of your listeners probably know, I, I'm a regular listener and I generally participate in the chat on and the discussion on your boards. I usually have some comment to say and some reminiscent idea of, you know, hey, that reminds me of a time we did blah, blah, whatever. So I really enjoy it. It's, it's sort of allowed me to um, sort of revisit my time working on Earthdawn, which was a very... Uh, fun and exciting and satisfactory time in my life. It was a really cool experience and it's nice to be able to sort of reminisce um, this way. Well, it was, it was it, from the beginning, it's been very cool to get those insights from you and, and just, uh, just get those stories that kind of pop up about different things that happened or different ways, certain ideas came about. Um, so we definitely want to get, get some more of that. It's, it's really cool to hear like this was the original idea, but then we changed it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we changed it because of this or that reason. So any of that kind of stuff you got, we're, uh, we're definitely open to hearing as much of that as we can. Okay, cool. One thing that stands out to me about the world of Earth Dawn is how everything is just so interlaced and so cohesive. What did you guys have to do actively to keep that cohesion between the different resources? Well, one of the design goals of the game originally was sort of um, D&D that makes sense is sort of a shorthand for it, right? One of the observations that's been made over the years is that, you know, Earth provides reasons for a lot of the stuff that we take for granted in typical fantasy games. So why are there underground, these vast underground areas with treasure and traps and monsters? And, you know, the Scourge and the Care provide, and Cares provide a pretty cool rationale for that. Um and so, you know, the game started, um, Jordan Weissman, who was one of the founders of FASA, um, and one of the developed creators of, of Shadowrun, had an idea that, hey, it'd be cool to do a fantasy game, too. And at the time, the possibility of it being related to Earthdawn was a strong one, but it hadn't, it wasn't a final decision. You know, that went back and forth a little bit during the early development of it. And they got a couple key people involved early. So they... So internally, they had, you know, uh, Jordan himself, Ross Babcock was involved, Sam Lewis, who was the president of FAST at the time, um, Tom Dowd, who was the Shadowrun developer, was involved, and a lot of the folks in the art department, um, uh, Jeff Lobenstein, Jim Nelson, Joel Bisk, Mike Nielsen, uh, Tony Sudlow, those those guys did a lot of concept art and sort of, you know, they they let them loose and say, hey, just come up with some cool artwork that might be fun for a fantasy game that, 
you know, and I don't, again, I don't think saying that Shadowrun was uh, its successor was a given. It was sort of a, like a, it was understood, but it wasn't formal, right? So, um, and, but one of the goals of, of, from the beginning was to sort of make this cohesive thing so the rules and the setting really fit together a little bit better. Um, and so in addition to that team, they also hired a couple people to, to write and design the game. Greg Gordon was brought in to write the rules, and Greg had worked on the James Bond 007 role-playing game for Victory Games. He had be the, was the lead designer for DC Heroes at Mayfair, and that's where he worked with Sam Lewis. Sam Lewis was at Mayfair when they did that game, and then Sam moved to FASA. Uh, he did, so he did DC Heroes, and then he also worked on Torg at West End Games. And then after that, he uh, FASA hired him to work on on Earth Dawn. And then the other person they brought in was Christopher Kubasik. And Christopher was more in charge of the world. So they had, you know, several brainstorming meetings and, and design meetings together as well with the FASA folk to come up with some of these ideas, you know, the pros and cons of, of, of D and D and fantasy games, you know, like one of the reasons the dice system in Earth Dawn has all the different polyhedrals is that polyhedral dice are fun. You know, it's kind of a cool thing to be able to use them. And so, you know, Greg came up with the step system as a way to make use of all those different types of dice instead of just going with D6s or D10s. Or, um, you know, at one point in design, he actually came up with a, an alternative step system that used more D8s than the others. Um, but we ended up going with the traditional one because, you know, in the original concept, one of the reasons was multi-polyhedral uh, dice are fun and so uh that idea of the cohesion really does go back to the to the very beginning and and once it was sort of built into the into the game as we proceeded through other supplements i i just tried to keep that um alive and keep that as a focus and in fact uh, one of the things i pointed out on your message boards um, which was sort of a guiding philosophy i don't know if i would have been able to articulate it so clearly then but was that if that I tried to figure out how the world worked and the game mechanics would be a consequence of that, as opposed to thinking about how the game should work and make the world be uh, work differently. So that's why there are some things that sort of some rules and things that came that turned out to be uh, balancing challenges. So, for instance, named spells is one that comes to mind. Right, so if if naming really does give something a pattern and sort of a life of its own, and you can actually create a spell and have a duration and then name it and make it permanent, to me that makes sense in the metaphysics of the magic, right? But the consequences of that are pretty powerful if you don't put some sort of caveats around it. Um, and so when we came up with ideas like that, we tried to balance the rules so that it wasn't completely wacko. Uh, in terms of game balance. But this idea of the two being very interrelated does go back. Again, I tried to keep it a, a focus. And I prep, I lean towards the world building more than the game mechanics. So I would sacrifice a little bit of game balance, a little bit of wonkiness if the rules were cool, if the world, if the mechanics and the concepts were cool. So that's a very rambly answer, but I hope it gets to the point of your question. <laughs> no, another way that the game's cohesive, um, 
like you were mentioning the the uh, combination of the rules and the world working together, but even the world by itself, you'll see a little a sentence or two in one product that just mention throws something out, and then another product really fleshes that out. I can't think of a single instance where something's like hinted over here and then never picked up in the you know, in the product that is based on that world. Like, uh, for example, the Serpent River book, it's got a sentence or two talking about the pale ones, the Tuscrang that live in the uh, the flooded caverns underneath the mountains of Thrall. And then the Thrall book fleshes that out. Um, I always got this sense that that you knew where you were going with it. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about um, how far in advance were you looking at what products were coming out like, did you have a full slate of we're going to do this book, then that book, then that book? Or was it more like develop the world and then figure out we've got all this stuff and how do we package it? Uh, we definitely did it product by product. Um, so generally in the game industry, uh, at least at that time, and I think it's still true, you generally work probably eight months to a year ahead, right? So, you know, when a product comes out in april let's say a new book comes out in april at that same time the developer's probably working on two or three when you have a regular release schedule you know like when we did eight you know we did eight products a year or sometimes we went to four products a year when you have a regular schedule at that same time while that one's coming out you're probably going working with editorial on the last bits of the next of of the next one and you're working with um the writers or developers of the one before that and maybe even outlining the one that's coming after that. So you, so, you know, we were working at least, you know, eight months to a year out. And that was, you know, anywhere from three or four products to five or six or seven products ahead. Um, but, you know, one of the things, um, and I, I mentioned this in my, in my book, actually, um, which we may talk about a little bit later is that, um, what, so when I got into games, I got into games through DC heroes. I was a big DC comics reader and, uh, and I learned about this uh, DC Heroes role-playing game, and I really hadn't been involved in gaming before that. I had heard about D&D, but I, I couldn't understand why anyone would want to play a game where you have to read 200-page rulebooks to do it. You know, yeah, um, I, I don't read rulebooks that short either, so I right. agree. <laughs> so, um, so I got into that game, and as the new supplements would come out and more and more characters were fleshed out, I, I had this idea that at Mayfair's offices, they had a filing cabinet with all these characters figured out. Like they sat down and statted out the world and we're just dishing it out slowly over time. Well, that's not true at all. Really. They were making it up as they went, you know, they, you know, in some cases they had it figured out, but if, you know, if they did a new, they did a teen Titans module that featured the fearsome five. I remember this specifically. They didn't reach in a filing cabinet, pull out the stats for the fearsome five. The author wrote the stats for the fearsome five when he wrote the book. And so while we do work ahead, the world isn't all that fleshed out beyond, you know, what we're working on at the time. I certainly had some ideas about some things and some long range plans. And when I did have those in mind and had some of figured some of that figured out, I let's let the authors know about it. Um, in, in terms of sort of the, the thread that you're talking about, like, so you mentioned the pale one, you make sure you bring it up later. I'm, I'm sort of blessed with a really good memory. And so that, really helped in terms of when, you know, um, when I was putting together the notes to provide to the author for the Thrall Kingdom book, I went through some of the other books and remember, and tried to find references to Thrall that we had to the, to the mountains as well as the kingdom that we had sprinkled in other books. 
and said, hey, oh, don't forget the pale ones or don't forget Barter Town. You know, obviously, you're not going to forget Barter Town, right? But, but um, so that was a deliberate thing. And, and I had actually developed sort of a, um, a Bible and timeline of, in each of the books, some of the specific things that we had mentioned. I tried to keep the, a document up to date so I could go back and see about these little little bits. Um, one of the other things that I tried to do, I think I was pretty successful, um, was sort of these subplots and little threads, like, again, that, that ran through um, in, a, in a more significant way. And, and that comes back to my, my love of comic books, actually, and that um, in the 80s, in the mid-80s, I was reading uh, D- T- DC's New Teen Titans, and, they, and Marv Wolfman and George Perez uh, worked on that, and they, they did this great job of they would introduce this little side thing in issue three, and then in issue nine, all of a sudden it would come back and be more meaningful. And then in issue five, they would do it. And then issue 22, something would come. So they had this, these subplots flowing through. And that was a big feature of the DC Heroes game at the time. And so I tried to do the same sort of thing. So like, for instance, in Mist of, Mists of Betrayal, the MacGuffin, sort of the thing that brings the characters to the Bloodwood and back is the ever-living flower. We knew the Evelyn Flower was cool and important, but we hadn't really figured out how cool or how important it was. I knew it was related to the very long, long, long lived elves and their relationship to their progenitors. And I knew that it was, you know, a pe- an important piece, but I hadn't figured out exactly what it does or who had made it. Um, and so one of the one of the things we tried to do in that was when you um when we created new little things like that or bits and uh, story hooks was to only define what you need. Like, and you know, the, the sort of rule of thumb that I used then and I promoted to, and I think I included this in my book too, is, is when you're working on this to, to provide only as, as much detail as you need, but um, as little as possible, but as much as you need, because that leaves you enough flexibility to change things. Right. So, as long as when I'm, you know, describing the ever-living flower in Mists of Betrayal, for instance, if I'm vague enough, I can make it a bunch of different things when the time comes for me to figure out what it really is. But if back then I say it is X, Y, Z, and it can't, and it's only this other thing, then I'm sort of hamstrung in the future. And so, uh, and th- this is something I, I learned actually from Tom Dowd, uh, and that is just to leave things as open as possible. At one point we had this idea, I had this idea for a map set for one of the Earthdown products. So we, you know, when we would plan our products, the developer, like I was in charge of Earthdown, Tom was in charge of Shadowrun, Brian Neistel was in charge of Battletech. We would, one of, part of our job was to come up with ideas for products. And then we would go to the production team and the rest of the company and say, I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. And one of the ideas I had at one point was a map set. Uh, that took the Barset map and broke it into, say, six or eight smaller pieces and zoomed in and provided more detail, little streams or rivers or towns or villages or, or whatever. Uh, and Tom really didn't like that idea because it might hamstring authors in the future. He said, you know, if you put this village here and then somebody else wants to do something, um, it may get in the way. And I disagreed with him at the time because my was I'm building this world you know, and the, the writer can work around me. But over time, I kind of came to see the wisdom of it. It, it gives you a lot more flexibility. Um, and so we would put these things in there, um, it, leaving them, you know, detailed enough to, 
to go to catch your attention, but vague enough so that we could tweak them as necessary once we figured out what we wanted to do. Um, and then we would, I tried, you know, to follow up on most of them. I mean, there's probably a handful of things that we never really followed up on, but, um, but a lot of them we certainly followed up with, followed up on in and deliberately. So, you know, um, another good example are the blades of Kara Fog, which we sort of, I dropped into shattered pattern knowing that that was coming as a future supplement, the blades was coming. So that was a plan where I, we knew it was coming and I needed to, I wanted to make it available somehow. So I figured this was kind of a good way to, to do that. And all that, that uh, flexibility and leaving it uh, open for the authors to be able to take it different directions. That also benefits game masters too, because if I have some idea that needs a particular village, I can just find an empty spot on the map and go, it's over there. Um, right, but if, right. if you had done that and mapped everything out, then I'd be worried I'm trampling on something that you've laid out somewhere else in the canon. Right, right. Well, and it turns out that artwork is really expensive, so that map set would have been a really expensive product to do anyway. So, um, But yeah, exactly. And so, I again, I disagreed at the time, but I think in the end it was probably the right thing to do to do some other things. Um, so, How did you guys handle playtesting in the early days? Especially since, you know, you've got, you've got to make sure it works for low circle and high circle. You've got to make sure it works for all these different disciplines, different styles of games. You know, it's, it's not like a linear, uh, you know, linear uh, video game or something where you, you know, make sure level three doesn't have bugs in it. It's, it's sort of this toolkit for playing whatever kind of game you want. Um, I just can't even wrap my head around the challenges of trying to make sure that that all works. Um, so how did you sort of tackle that problem? Well, I I actually got involved with Earthon as a playtester. Uh, my first connection with it was, um, so I knew Greg because, I knew Greg Gordon because he had worked on DC Heroes and that was a game I was interested in. And I sent, I submitted stuff to, to Mayfair. So they had a newsletter and I would write up characters and submit them and say, hey, put this in your newsletter. And they did a handful of times. And so I sort of, got to, to know I did some play testing for them as well for uh, for Tom Cook who was the senior line editor for DC Heroes at Mayfair I did play testing for them and I had written a couple little bits here and there um, and so I got to know Greg and then I worked at Mayfair for a period of time uh, when they were working on DC Heroes second edition and I did a little bit of design work I um, did some, some play testing, offered some feedback. I worked with uh, Ray Winninger and Jack Barker on the stats. There was a whole, in the DC Hero Second Edition game, there's a whole book of stats of characters. And we sat in a room with um, a Mac, an old Mac with a hyper stat, a hyper card um, custom database that, that we had built for, for stat generation that did some of the math for us. And we just sat there and like, okay, so speedy. And the Teen Titans, what is he like? You know, an Aqualad. And so we had spent hours and hours doing that. So I got to know Greg there. And then uh, I actually got involved playtesting Torg. When Greg, Greg was working on Torg, I got involved as a playtester of that. And I play tested several of the very first of the world books for that. Um, not the very first one, but but I don't know how if you're familiar with Torg much, but like five or six of the first like six or seven main world books me and my group my group and i would be play tested that and so i got to know greg there and that was actually where i got my first design work i'd been doing some play testing and he said i think it's time you do some writing and 
And Bill Slavisek, who was the main editor at West End Games, gave me a shot with a short adventure. Um, I did that. And then another author wasn't able to finish his uh, project on this adventure collection. So they gave me a second one and they did that. So so I got to know Greg and then he moved to FASA to do Earthdawn. And then I got to play test that. So my group and I... Um, including my wife, uh, were play testers on early versions of the game. Um, and we tried to, you know, we tested what we could of the first few circles. Um, I, you know, just identifying little bits here and there, um, tweaks here and there. It was a big challenge. And frankly, we, we weren't able to test it as thoroughly as we should all the way through 15th circle. Um, I think that shows, but we did what we could. Uh, when I, I was a playtester, and then in December of 1992, I got hired by FASA to be the line developer for Earthdawn. I was the first official in-house line developer for the game. Um, my group continued to playtest, and I said, could you specifically try to playtest like Circle 10, 11? I really need to see how this goes. And I, I did some playtesting even, you know, I, I grew concerned at one point that... Um, attack steps would grow at a faster rate than than physical defense for example and what kind of balance issues is that going to cause but that's sort of offset by um, durability right and so even though you get hit more often potentially because your physical defense doesn't change as much as the opponent's attack step um, you are able to absorb more damage so it stays you know and so greg and i actually did play testing over the phone we did these long little battles where we, you know, just rolling dice and, you know, one of the guys in my, in my, we had a shared office. He, he pretended he's like, Sam, Lou's playing, playing games. He's rolling dice. Um, when I was on the phone with Greg doing this, uh, this play test. Um, so we did what we could to try to, to, you know, um, test some of it out. I, again, I think there are some places where, um, I think it shows we weren't able to test it quite as thoroughly as we could have or should have. Um, one area I think that really stands out for me that I sort of regret we did. Um, I ended up making use of it later, so I, I couldn't really take it away, but I wish we had thought it through differently is multi-disciplines. Um, originally the game didn't have multi-disciplines and then Greg added it in one of his last drafts. He said, you know, characters, players like to do this, so we should probably try to support it. Um, and we thought we had made it expensive enough to, to deter people, but I think we lost sight of the fact that as you get up higher in circle, things are so expensive anyway that that it turns out to be more economical to, to multidiscipline. Now, one of the reasons I have a blind spot about things like this because um, it goes back to the thing I mentioned earlier about my 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 tendency to lean towards the world as opposed to the game. Um, we say multi multidisciplining is rare in the adept's way. We went out of our way to come up with a mechanic even to to um, support why it's rare and why it's difficult. And so my I sort of rely on the game master to be the conduit through which things are permissible, right? And so just because a player wants to multi-discipline so he can, his character can be more kick-ass is not a good reason, in my opinion, for the GM to let him. 
but that's my opinion and not all game masters feel the same way. And so I think multidisciplining um, became a shortcut for, you know, efficiency and power and, and effectiveness that I really wish it hadn't. Um, and that's something that, you know, we didn't have much of a chance to really play test, play test that the way we should have at all. So, yeah, it's difficult too, because certain players might, even if it feels unbalanced to you, certain players might love that. So like what, it, you know, it's different than like, um, finding outright bugs in software or something. It's, you know, it's more subjective, but, um, yeah, we've never really done multidiscipline. I don't think we've gotten high enough in the circles to where we've started our campaign over at different times. Cause I've had different mixes of people. Um, we've never gotten high enough to really do that, but I, yeah, I can kind of see where it could possibly have some balance issues, but wouldn't you allow well, it if someone made up a good enough reason why? Well, the, uh, the other thing too, is it's not just, here's a reason why I want to do another discipline, but um, I don't remember specifically which books, but some of the books talk about reconciling the concepts of the discipline, you know, with Earth on your discipline's not just a bucket of different talents you can pick from like it is in a lot of games. It's actually an entire philosophy and way of life of how your character thinks. So you, it would be pretty difficult to have two, com, you know, different conflicting. Two opposing ones, yeah. Right, so... Right. It kind of puts and that's, some work on the player and the GM to figure out how you can be this and that. Right, and that's and that's what I was alluding to. In the Adept's way, uh, all the discipline write-ups include some information about multidisciplines, um, and that's where we introduce this idea of, of uh, talent crisis. Right, I think it's called talent crisis. It might be called something else, but basically, when, if and when. Um, you act in sort of violation of your discipline's sort of perspective or point of view or mindset, you may actually uh, suffer a penalty of some sort. And that can be exacerbated when you are talking about really radically different disciplines. Um, well, out of all your, uh, your years at FASA, are th what are a couple of, a uh, couple of things that stand out to you, like certain products that you're, really really proud of or like your favorite areas i know we've always said that par length is out of everything we love on earth on par length is our our favorite that's sort of like a haven's like our hometown is how it feels like <laughs> you, right that and of the adventures i think shattered pattern was probably our favorite as yeah, well yeah but, but what what kind of stands out to you as uh, if you had to pick one or two things that were kind of the high points of working on this um so I think the Serpent River is certainly one of them. Uh, as I mentioned um, on your message boards, right? So the Serpent River, uh, we did the Denizens of Earth on. And I, as the line developer, you know, needed to find authors. And one of my friends who had been in a game group with me was interested in getting involved. And so I gave, he was interested in Scrang, so I gave him that chapter. And he wrote the chapter, and that his name is Sean Rhodes. He wrote that, and when it came time to do the Serpent River, I offered that to him as well. And he, this was his first experience as a game writer. Um, and, and some of his, you know, I think some of his mechanics and some of that stuff needed a little polish, but is the ideas and the culture that he built um, and the character of each of the f five or six trading houses, you know, of the of the great houses of the... <clears throat> I think were uh, was really cool. So that, and that just... 
is one of the more unique. Like you're not going to find a, a, a parallel to the Serpent River in most fantasy games. It's just very cool. The Scrang are very cool in what they do. So that was certainly a highlight. Um, Parlength, I think, was a, a, another good one. And, and as you know, that played a significant role in the um, the first novel that sort of opened up the game. So when the game launched, we had the rule book and we had, I think, no, we didn't have the game's screen. We had the rule book and the, and the first novel were around right when the game launched. Um, and, and that was one of those things, like, I can't wait till we get to Parlength. And so that was, I think in the second year or so, I think that was our second campaign set we did in the summer of 95, I think it was. <coughs> and, uh, and that was cool. And that was Robin Laws. And he had, I got, he was another author I'd got to know. And I, he wrote Infected, which is an early adventure. And he wrote The Orcs in, in, um, Denison's Birth Dawn. That was another cool one, and I, I, I agree with you guys. Parlance is, is a very fun place to play. Um, I have a soft spot for Shattered Pattern because I because I wrote it. Um, but and I think of all the products, actually, the one I I probably am the most proud of, or a couple of them, are uh, Prelude to War. I think was very cool and came out really well, and I think it um, it met all of our objectives. And then the other one is probably the the book that I would one of the ones I was most proud of, which was sad that we never really published, which was the dragon's book. The dragon's book, as we had envisioned it as, you know, when I got laid off, I had just worked with the editors on the indexing for it and the final proofread. So it was really close. Um, but that book was really cool because it sort of also tied in some threads that we had been laying along the way and setting up the stage for the next round of stuff. Was, um, was that Dragon's Book um, a completely separate product from the one that ended up getting published later? Or was like was that manuscript picked up and and reworked and published? Or was that a totally separate project from the Dragon's Book that ended up coming out? Um, I don't remember if it was Red Book or Living, Living Room Games, but one, one of them had a Dragon's Book. Right. So I think Living Room Games got the text of it and was able to publish a an edited version of it um if you search online you can find the pdf a pdf of the original facet dragons book it doesn't have any artwork but it has the the um the page layout you know with the header and the photographics and all that you, know, you can certainly tell and and if necessary i can point you to it i'm sure i have a copy of it um so we had it had gotten into layout um Again, I was. We were working on. I think we did the indexing and and the proofreading, um, and so you know what would happen is we would, I would get the manuscripts in, do my sort of development edit pass, turn it over to editorial. They would you know make sure stylistically we were consistent and we were doing things the way we we're supposed to, and they would clean up the language, and then they would turn it back to me, and I would do a re a review again, uh, highlighting just you know. Um, we, we lost this key point in the editing process or can we change this and make it more vague? Or could we change this and make it more specific? So we would have, you know, sort of a, a, a one last pass um, on that side. And I think we had gotten through that part. And like I said, the indexing, we had sent it out to an indexer. And generally what would happen is when we'd send the books to the indexer, <clears throat> we would have say four pages allocated for index and we would get enough entries back for six or seven pages. And so, the editing team and I would have to would sit down and say, well, 
no one is going to look up this piece of information this way. Like no one's going to think to look for, I can't even think of an example off the top of my head, but you know, we sort of went through the index and figured out in our, in our view, how we thought people would be using the index to find information and we trimmed it as we could. So we got that far through it. And then I was told I was being laid off in two weeks. Um, and then FASA announced ending the game a little bit later. I got laid off at the end of June of 98. I think they announced the close, the end of the game line in maybe July or August. And then I think in the fall, they finally released the Dragon's PDF. And then, but I think, I think that same text was delivered or handed over to Living Room Games. Um, they actually got, so all of my files, when I left, I boxed it all up. And those include printouts of those documents I told you about, the sort of Bible I'd been building and notes that I had gotten from when Craig and Chris were working on the game and and just everything I had collated and collected over the the five or six years I was there. Um, And I put them in a couple boxes. Apparently those boxes were delivered to Living Room Games, and so they had the advantage of those. And Unfortunately, I don't think Josh has them now, which is unfortunate because there's probably something that he would make be able to make some good use out of as he proceeds through with the fourth edition stuff. So, so that all that to say, I think the living room games book, and I think it was them that did it is an altered version. And I would recommend you go back and find the original. Um, I don't want to say much more than that, but um, I, I was very, I was very excited about that book coming out. I thought it was going to be very, very cool. So, so uh, tell us more about your your uh, book that you've got out, The Imagineering Pyramid. Rachel and I have both read it, and uh, going through the book, I could really see the, the topics that you talked about there. I could tell, you know, had kind of come out of, in addition to drawing from the, the Disney material, I could tell that you had a lot of practical experience through Earth Dawn and other projects, that you had a lot of practical experience of, of putting these ideas into use. So... Um, what, tell us about the Imagineering Pyramid and what it's kind of what the focus is and uh, why someone should read it and get into it. Okay, so, um, uh, well, I'm a, a huge Disney fan and I have been since Disney Parks fan. I mean, I've been a fan of the movies too, but um, I went to Disney World on my honeymoon and so sort did of. We. <laughs> sorry, what was that? So did we. Right. Um, and my, my wife had been before, but that was my first time. And I um, was just sort of uh, astounded and amazed at this level of immersive experience that they created. You know, um, when we went, it was in May, right after our wedding. Obviously, it was our honeymoon. <clears throat> but the first day we got there, it was rainy. And, and back then, there were times when the parks weren't crowded, unlike now. And we got to Epcot. We started Epcot and it was rainy and it wasn't crowded. We walked on everything like in a row. We did Spaceship Earth. We did Universe of Energy. We did Wonders of Life. We did Horizons. We did World of Motion. We did Journey to Imagination. We did Land. We did the Seas. I mean, all in a few hours because we could walk on everything. And so as I you know, went from each of these, my mind sort of just like, wow, this is just amazing. And then when we got to Journey into Imagination, it sort of really just hit me like wow this is this is very very cool and i was working at fasa at the time so i joined fasa in 90 uh, in december of 92 and we got married in may of 93 so in fact i had just i think delivered the manuscript i think we had finished the development 
for the manuscript for the rule book. Um, it was going to be published in August of that year. We were going to release it at Gen Con. Um, and so at the time, I thought, wow, this is just so cool. And and so when I get interested in things, I read, I buy books about them, and I sort of recognize that um, that this Disney theme park stuff would be a great model of the creative process. And, um, and in 1996, uh, Disney published a book called Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind the dreams look at making the magic real, which was this first real big look sort of inside uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, the people that build and design the parks. And, and I started to realize that this would be a great model for the creative process. And I, I felt then as I do now that people in various creative fields, the game designers should should go there and understand how the Imagineers do what they do because there's lessons there. Um, I hadn't gotten very specific yet about the lessons, but um, but over time, as I bought more books and went more and visited more, and um, I started to sort of map out, like uh, trying to understand the process they go through, and then I started to identify these different principles. Um, you know, and one of the main ones was what I call readability. And that is the ability sort of simplify complex subjects. And that's like when you're in Pirates of the Caribbean and you come around the corner and there's the jail scene and you see the pirates in the jail and you see the dog outside with the ring of keys in his mouth. Within, you know, two or three seconds, you understand what's going on. That's a very readable scene. And uh, at the time I had, I had left FASA and I was working as a technical writer and instructional designer. And I thought to myself, when I read about in a book about Pirates of the Caribbean, that one of the things they tried to do is make these scenes readable and recognizable quickly for the audience. I realized, hey, that's what we do in training when we like create an illustration or a diagram to, com to communicate a complex subject. We're doing the same thing. And so I started looking for these other principles. And I started to realize that there's even more about Imagineering that I think that we could teach that, that is a good model for the creative process. And, and one of the one of the observations I have is in the creativity literature, you know, how to be more creative in these books about creativity. One of the things that's not as prominent as, as you know, 101 ideas for new ways to create new ideas, how to be more creative. And those are great things, but there's not as many examples of here is a company that is doing creative work and being creative. And here are the things they do that you can learn from. And so I, I developed, um, a presentation about instructional design called Imagineering Instructional Design. And I presented it at a conference um, in Orlando. And actually, while I was there, I visited Disney World as well. Um, can't be that close and not go, right? So, um, <laughs> but at the time, I also thought that it had a broader application and maybe I could turn, up, turn it into a book. Um, and at the time, there were two parts. There was this pyramid of ideas, which I'll get to in a little bit. And then this process, which was this five or six or seven step process of how the Imagineers start with an idea and work that idea through until completion. Uh, and I started writing a couple times. Uh, I started drafts and outlines and things, and then other things in my life would come up, you know, other stuff would happen. Um, and, and then I got an email from uh, Theme Park Press, the publisher at Theme Park Press saying, hey, I found your Imagineering instructional design presentation online. And I think, I think if you made it more broad and general and top, you know, in general or generic, it would make a great book. How would you like to write a book for me? So, um, so that, that's sort of how the, how, one of the ways it came about. And so 
um, along the way, I developed this uh, Imagineering Pyramid, which is a set of 15 principles and, and practices that the Imagineers use when they de design and develop uh, theme parks and attractions. And what I tried to do with each is identify what the Imagineers do, and then what's the principle behind it that's applicable to other fields. So, for example, readability, that one I talked about, is, you know, in, in the theme parks, it's creating these quickly recognizable and readable scenes, like the jail scene in, the Pir in Pirates of the Caribbean, or um, several of the scenes in the, uh, the Jungle Cruise, or right? some of the vignettes in the Jungle Cruise. Um, and so there's these, I identified 15 of them, and, then, and they actually turned out that they, they fit together very well. So there was five of this type, and four of another type, and three of another type, and two, and one. So it actually worked out into a nice 15-block pyramid. Um, and so I started writing the book originally. It was intended to be called The Imagineering Toolbox that was going to include the pyramid and the process. But over as I got into it, there was too much to say. I, I mean, it could have been one book, but it would have been really big and and I think it keeps it more focused by by uh, by sticking with the pyramid. I think I was able to stay more focused, which is one of the principles in the book too, which is to focus on your subject matter. You know, so um, and that's all about story. So Disney, right, is very about story, and story plays a very pivotal role in how they develop things. Um, and so the principle there, you know, is is using your subject matter to inform the decisions as you move through your project. So to make sure that, you know, you stay focused. And, and in my case, it was pulling out the process part and focusing on the pyramid because that's what the real message of the book should be. And, you know, that's out of everything in the book, that's probably the one part that I've gotten the most out of is the, it's all about a story um, because it's difficult when you make any kind of creative, um, creative project some of your favorite things are really good individually and just terrible as far as fitting into the hole. And you have, <laughs> you have to ax some of your best parts if it's a part right. that you don't need. <laughs> right. You have to be willing to kill your babies as they say. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That to me is, is obviously a critical one and it's a foundational one for the Imagineers as well. Um, one of the other ones that I, I sometimes think I could write a whole book about is, is creative intent, which is about, um, staying focused on your objective, you know, what, what are you really trying to accomplish? Um, because sometimes we do things because we're supposed to, or we think we're supposed to, or because we're checking off a box on a checklist or whatever, when really, if you step back and try to figure out what your real objective is, it might lead you in a different direction. So. And I can see that in Earthdown because there are a lot of typical fantasy things that if you would have looked at, uh, you know, from Tolkien or look at Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, there are a lot of things that, Oh, we have to do this cause that's how it is. But it seems like you guys didn't do any of that. You stepped back and said, okay, we know the goal. Does this fit or does this not? Or how can we rework this? There, there wasn't a lot. There's really nothing in earth on that. I think was there just because it felt like it had to be, it was all there because it fit that big picture. Right. Well, what's interesting is, when I got the job uh, as the Earth Online developer, I <clears throat> did not have a, a very extensive uh, background or knowledge of existing fantasy literature and games. I, I start like I said, I started with DC Heroes. I had played Torg. I had played a bunch of things. I had played D and D, but it was not 
you know, not I, I read the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, but I wasn't deep, deep, deep into it. And so I was relatively um, unschooled in traditional fantasy. And I, as I think back, I, I wonder if that helped because it, um, it prevented me from ever creating tropes, at least deliberately. I may have copied things because the reason they were done in the first place, but I came up with the same reason, but I, I never sought to say, Oh, well we should do this because they do it in Tolkien because I didn't, you know, like I said, I didn't know it well enough to realize if they had done it in Tolkien, you know? So. Now, one other thing that I really like about the imaginary pyramid, uh, you don't just lay out the, the concepts, but you've got chapters at the end that show how to apply this, in different ways. And one of your chapters is examples pulled right out of earth on, you've got a whole chapter on game design and, uh, you, you have a lot of not just earth on, you talk about other, uh, you know, other game design things too, but there's a lot of, a lot of meat there that shows in earth on, we did this and this is how that relates, um, mm -hmm. to the imaginary pyramid. I really enjoyed that part. Yeah. So, right. So in the book, what we go through the 15 principles, uh, and in each, um, I talk about how Disney uses it, how the Imagineers use it in the parks, but also, you know, what's the principle behind it and how that might apply in different other creative fields. And one of the whole purposes of the book is to show people how to take these principles and apply them to fields that I call beyond the berm. And the, the berm is sort of the barrier of a particular theme park, right? So, um, and and as you say, one of the goals, one of the other things, is after we go through these 15 principles, I have a chapter on game design and instructional design and leadership and management in terms of how these principles apply in those different fields. Um, and with the whole basic premise of the book being that there's creativity in almost everything we do, you know, almost every job involves some level of creativity. And, and to be more creative, we need good models. And here's one of the best models you can find, which is Disney theme park. Right. So, um, and yeah, when I went into the game design chapter, I leveraged my specific experience, which was, you know, my work on Earthdawn. And I tried to use that in a couple of different ways um, to highlight uh, specifically, like when we were talking about objectives, right, and creative intent. A couple of the examples there were, um, you know, you, you can have, within a game, you can have different types of objectives. You may want to create a game and the objective is to do something specific mechanically or, or, um, with uh, <clears throat> with the, the play experience, the you know the, con the controls of the user interface, or or you may want to do something story based. Um, and I tried to use a couple of examples from Earthon in terms of you know world building objectives. So, for instance, Blades came out of a desire and a need to sort of do it, create an adventure that really shows game masters how they can use the magic system in Earthon with the thread weaving and thread ranks and key knowledges and thread knowledges and all that stuff. And how do you do this? Because when we when when we publish the game, we tried to explain it, but it's pretty complicated. And so we thought back even back then, you know, Greg and I sort of we should do an adventure where they find that really shows, you know, a group of characters getting an item and marking them through how, how this might happen in a game, in a campaign. And it took some time before we got around to doing Blades, but the, the goal of that was to be an example of, of how magic items sort of fit into a campaign. And, you know, <clears throat> one of the reasons it's the Blades 
of Karafat instead of the blade of Karafat is because we realized, well, we wanted something that you know, is of interest to all the characters. So you want something that a whole group could be invested in as opposed to we're going to go on this series of really tough adventures just so the warrior can have a cool weapon. No, that's not so much the same. But if we can all, if we all have a cool weapon and it makes us better at everything we do because it ties into this whole group pattern thing, that might be kind of cool. So, you know, Blades had a specific creative objective, which was to illustrate and be an example of how to integrate um, researching magical weapons in an Earthbound game. Um, the other example that I used was Prelude to War, which was, <clears throat> um, you know, FASA had been sort of well-known at the time for having these very active and dynamic worlds, specifically Battletech. You know, Battletech you know, big significant events would happen in the novels in Battletech and then game supplements would sort of follow up on that and how does this impact the world? And it was constantly changing and Shadowrun had started some of that as well, but Earthdawn was still sort of just sandbox. I mean, there was, um, there were supplements and some things had happened, but it wasn't really as active. And so we decided we wanted to, you know, activate the world with these key events. And we had had a, a creative summit. We invited, a handful of creators, uh, in fact, Sean Rhodes and Robin Laws were two of the people that I invited to the FAS offices for a two or three day set of meetings where we talked about, you know, what's good, what's bad, what could we do that's cool. Um, and I had had this idea about the Therans bringing a behemoth and planking it, you know, a few thousand, you know, just deep, deeper up to the north and east from Sky Point and Vivane. And Sean said, you know, if we really want to make it cool, we should junk it here right at the junction of the, of the throw of the Serpent River and the Coil River. And I said, wow, that's kind of bold. Okay, cool. And so we, you know, and then we thought, well, we could kill the king. That'll be certainly trigger some fun stuff. Um, <laughs> and then we worked out these ideas as a way to sort of activate the world and have it have more motion. And then um, once we sort of figured that out, then it was a matter of, you know, okay, so how do we, What's the story behind the death of the king? What's and, you know? What's the adventure that's surrounding the arrival of the, the behemoth? And you know, and so those, I use those two as examples of you know creative objectives uh, within a game. And then I tried to balance. And there's a couple other examples like long, medium, and close shots. I think I think a way that game publishing, at least at the time, and maybe it's different now. I'm not as <clears throat> up to date and and as involved as I used to be, but. Um, you know, in the Earthdawn rulebook, we, we have a chapter about bar save that was not one of the larger chapters, but it provided an overview of the world um, and sort of give you this big picture of all these places. And, you know, this very high-level picture of, say, Iopus, I think is the example I talk about in the, in the book. And then in the parling, in the bar save campaign set, we had maybe a page or two or three about Iopus, a little bit more that sort of elaborated on that. And again, back to this idea of being vague, right? We only wanted to say as much as we had to at the time to give us more freedom later. Um, and so we sort of elaborated over time, and eventually we would have done an Iopus book. Um, yeah, I, but and that was one of the books I was going to do after uh, the Dragons book, but that didn't happen. So, yeah, I'm still hoping to see an Iopus book at some point. That'd be great. Uh, I, think, I think Josh has that in mind. I think, but it. it will likely be somewhat different, but that's cool. I think what he's doing is pretty cool. So. Yeah. You know, one thing that really jumps out at me, too, about the Imagineering Pyramid, 
Um, you hear people all the time say, oh, I'm not creative. Like it's, it's just this binary state. I'm a creative person or I'm not. And, you know, there is an aspect of creativity that you don't know where it comes from to some extent. But there's also, to a larger extent, it's a process. A, a creative person is a person who has adopted and continually uses a process of creating things. And that's, I think that this book could really be valuable for anybody who kind of feels hung up on that of, I'm not creative. First of all, there are things that you do that are creative that you might not, you know, you might not call it that if you're not putting paint on a canvas or, or playing music or whatever, but you, you're being creative, even if maybe society doesn't label it as that. Uh, But the other thing is, it's not like, it's not like people that, that do these highly creative projects all the time that comes out of a vacuum. It's, it's a, you know, there are sets of proven tools and techniques that tend to lead to good results. And I, I really like that about this book is it's, it, it's not like some of the books, like just, Oh, go out and be creative. You know, it's, it's like, here's, here's some concrete things you can use. And um, it's an ongoing process, but we have even taken a lot of these techniques and used them to kind of shape the podcast to some extent, I, th- I think we have a ways to go, but we are uh, we, we're a lot more solid than we were when we started, and a lot of that has to do with uh, with drawing from these principles from your book. Well, cool. Thank. Uh, it's it's very gratifying to hear, and I I agree. And again, one of the the goals was, um, you know, people. One of the things I tried to point out in the book is that I I've been lucky to have been working in a cre- in creative fields for much of my adult life. So I went to college for music composition, right? And I did music composition and arranging. Then I, um, you know, I had a job in the real world doing whatever, but then I worked as a game designer, which was pretty creative. And now I work as a technical writer and instructional designer, which is creative. And I think a lot of people would say, wait, that third thing isn't very creative, but, but it is. And I think, again, there's, I think there's a creative aspect to a lot of what we do. And one of the challenges with that is, is a concrete example of, of how someone else is being creative and what are they doing at the, the core of what they're doing that I can do too that might help me be more creative. And so this pyramid are, are those, right? And so there's foundational p- principles, like we talked about some of those, which are you know, focusing on your subject matter. It's all about your story, your creative intent or your objective. Um, attention to detail is an important thing with Disney, which is an important thing with, that, with what we do. Um, theming, which is using the right details to tell you to help tell your story and meet your objective, and then you know moving, taking your your audience, whatever that is, right? Your audience isn't necessarily a paying audience or a, a purchasing audience, but it might be if you are presenting something at, at your work, if you have to present information to your management, you don't want slide two in your presentation to be a table with a bunch of details. You need to you know present things from general to the specific, which, you know, the Imagineers do by doing these establishing shots where from a distance, when you see Cinderella castle, you can instantly see that it's a fantasy castle. And as you get closer, you see a little bit more detail. And when you get really close, you see very specific details to tell you it's about Cinderella. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, that was certainly my, I, my intent with the book was, you know, you can take these principles and hopefully apply them to all sorts of fields. In fact, I've been talking with, uh, person on Facebook about how to apply these principles to travel planning, specifically Disney World travel planning. Um, 
And I've actually come up with quite a few ideas. Now I need to, you know, sort of coordinate with her and make sure I, I'm assuming things. I'm not a travel planner, but but it seems that the principles are applicable in a bunch of different ways. And so, um, so it's gratifying that you're able to find some value and some use out of it just in planning your podcast or in planning your other game development efforts. Um, Even for GMs and Earthdawn, all these concepts would apply for for running a campaign also. You know, the long shots and uh, close shots. You could use a lot of these same ideas for does this particular plot thread really, you know, contribute to the whole direction of the campaign? Mm-hmm. So yeah, even, that's right. Even there. I think I'd like to get back to the theme parks for just a second. Um, sure. I find the um, the theme park and the experience to parallel a film and underscore where the underscore is integral and it contributes, but if it stands out to the point to where it's distracting, then it's not doing its job. Hmm? I, I was actually going to say that exact thing. I Every time I go to Disney World or any of the Disney properties, I go, okay, I'm going to go learn some things. I'm going to see exactly what they did and how. And I, I do pick up some things, but it's so easy to just be in the experience that it's hard to see how it's put together. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I come out and go, oh, that was really cool. Oh, I forgot to pay attention to how they did it. You know? Right. Well, in, in that vein, um, I would like to know from Lou, what do you feel is the most successful marriage of um, of all of those principles in a certain ride or certain design at the parks? And what do you feel is the least successful? Ooh, well, <clears throat> okay. So <laughs> the first one's easier. Um, I think Expedition Everest in Animal Kingdom is probably one of the best examples of a lot of these principles at work. Um, as you arrive in the Animal Kingdom, as you walk towards there, you see you see the mountain it works as a, as a weenie. It draws your attention, right? Um, and you get this establishing shot of the of the mountain. There's kinetics at work, you know, as, as you see the trains moving. Um, the attention to detail is sort of astounding in the queue, particularly. Uh, the queue is a great post sh- uh, pre-show. It sort of introduces the idea. Now I'm talking about some of these principles. Um, you know, I'm not sure talking about all 15 in order is the most efficient way, but um, but maybe on the show notes we could put a link to some information about the book or something that people are interested sure. in. Um, but so the, you know, the queue works as a great pre-show to sort of hint at what has happened to other people. Um, the ride itself is, is just one of my all time favorites. Um, so I, I think it's a really good example of a lot of these principles at work and, and, you know, you're not necessarily going to find all 15 at work in every single attraction and that's okay. Um, and in fact, one of the things I, I tried to point out in the book is if you are, you know, if you read the book and you look through the principles and you look at, think of a project of your own and they don't all apply, you can't get all 15 principles to apply to your project, please don't just discard the rest of it. Make use what you can. You know, if it, if 12 of them are applicable, then use those 12. Who cares about the other three? You know, I mean, the other three will be useful for something else. So um, I think we tend to have an all or nothing model a lot of times when we think about applying different tools. You know, if not every piece of it fits, it doesn't fit. But I, I disagree with that. So Expedition Everest, I think, is is 
one of my favorite examples. It's one of my favorite attractions, but I think it's also an excellent example. And I think I, I think I use it as as many examples in the book as well. Um, one of the worst. That's hard. Well, I don't um, think there's any horrible things uh, at Disney. First of all, right. I'm just saying least successful. Like maybe um, a B a B roll. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think something. Um, I, I would say so. Like uh, Aladdin's magic carpets might be a, an example of something that doesn't. At Disney Quest. Not, I'm sorry. What? The, at Disney Quest. No, I mean a lot. The the magic carpets of Aladdin in Adventure Land. Oh, okay. The the Dumbo. The spinner, right, yeah. right. I don't, you know, I don't think that. Um, I agree with that. I, don't even, I yeah. don't even think the Imagineers would would argue that it's an attraction at the same level of uh, detail and um, involvement in. in um, <clears throat> they just kind of plunked Agrabah down there. It's it doesn't really right. seem I, like yeah. And I, I agree with and that. And I think I think it's fine. I think it's cool. I I actually haven't you know read it, wrote it myself, but I think it's fine. I I think. There was, I'm sure, there was a, a need, at, at the very least, an operational need to absorb some more capacity in that part of the park, and having something kid friendly was useful. And I'm, I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but I don't think it's, you know, the epitome of the craft of Imagineering. It's not quite at the level as some of the other things. Um, another, another thing that I've noticed, and at Epcot, is some of the things that they've had in past have been kind of absorbed by which I understand the reasoning for it, but it's kind of a disappointment is all of the um, the character areas now have taken over some of the original Epcot attractions. Mm-hmm. And that to me is it, it, it is lacking. Yeah, I, I I'm torn on this quite honestly, right? So when I went the first time, like I said, I you know went into the University of Energy in its original version is Wonders of Life, Horizons, World of Motion you know, these are things that you talk to people now and they don't even know what they are. Some people, right. Because they've been gone so long. Um, I, I am of the opinion that Epcot had to change. And I think there are many reasons for it. I think one was, you know, a, a subtle one I think is attention span, right? I think our exposure to media has changed since the eighties. Right in 1982 or 1983, movies were cut slower, scenes were longer. TV, you know, the whole structure of most of the entertainment that we experienced was different and generally slower paced than it is now. And I think those attractions fit closer to those types of things as opposed to now. Everything is much generally much quicker paced. Um, our attention span is probably getting shorter and shorter. Just you know, just in general. And I and I think that's a subtle part of why those attractions sort of sucked like Horizons uh, or World of Motion, you know, weren't drawing numbers and, and meeting their capacity just because I think it was such a different kind of experience. You know, I think sponsorship had reasons or reasons that Epcot had to change as well. I think another reason, actually, and, and I'm going to try to write a blog post about this. I just need to sort of coalesce some of my thoughts. I actually think one of the reasons Epcot um, sort of has had to change is that it represented a very optimistic view at the time. And I think in general, our culture and society, at least in America, was more optimistic in the 80s 
than it was in the late 90s and 2000s and certainly than it is now. Um, seeing Horizons talk about this potential wondrous future made some sense in 1983 and 1984. I think if you were to ride Horizons now, you would laugh at the disparity of what you think like there's no way the world's going to become that way right um and so i think generally a certain level of pessimism has, has kind of grown in our culture and i think contrasts with some of the original vision and optimism that was built into epcot um in terms of specifically about characters you know the, the classic example being frozen taking the place of maelstrom in the norway pavilion um I'm generally in favor of it only because I think Maelstrom was showing its age. I think it was probably not drawing the capacity. I think, and part of my rational, my rationale here is whenever these things happen, and, and I, I'm a bit of a purist too, and I don't always like the decisions that I that come out of the Disney company in terms of what they're doing with the parks. But I try to maintain some perspective. Um, one of the things I learned when I worked at FASA actually was I had sort of ideas about the game industry, about how they did things and why they did things. Um, and then when I worked at Mayfair, I got a little bit of insight. And then when I got to FASA, I got more and I started to realize that the decisions the companies made that I thought were stupid or misguided made a lot more sense once I understood the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is true with the Disney parks. When they announced that we're closing Maelstrom and putting Frozen in, the fir- initial reaction people have is, oh, they just want Frozen in the parks. Well, they had Frozen in the parks. They, they had a Frozen show that's still at Hollywood Studios. They could put Olaf in a parade. I mean, there was a bunch of different ways. If they just wanted a short, quick, get Frozen in the parks, they already had that. I, I try to look at things from a different, to understand that I don't have the same perspective as the park operators and the Imagineers and the food and beverage people and all the people that have to make those decisions. There are things that they know that I don't know, and there's information they have that I don't have, that if I did, I might make the same decision, right? And so I try to figure out, I try to step back and say, what's the need that they're trying to meet when they're doing this? And this sort of ties into the, the I'm writing the second book in the Imagineering Toolbox series now, which is about the process. And one of the general chapters is about the, the process starts with a need where somebody identifies a need of some sort. We need uh, more capacity in Magic Kingdom. And so one of the things that comes out of that need is new fantasy land with a bunch of new restaurants, new areas, new attractions. Um, and so when these character kind of things happen, like Frozen in the Maelstrom in the Norway Pavilion, I, even though I understand it sort of is diluting the original vision of Epcot, um, again, I sort of think Epcot has to change anyway, but I'm trying to understand the perspective. You know, maybe there's more going on there. Maybe, uh, you know, there are rumors that the Maelstrom ride had developed, mold had developed inside some of the buildings, and maybe they had to refurb the whole thing to be able to mediate that. Right. And so and why not maybe, retheme it while they're at it? Right. And right. So maybe it wasn't drawing its capacity. Let's say it could it could handle 900 people an hour and it was doing 600 people an hour. Well, maybe, you know, so that might be part of it. Maybe there's a mold issue. Frozen is very attractive, uh, uh, popular, you know, so there's a number of factors that could have contributed to that. And I and I don't know what they are. But I try to maintain some perspective and, and say, I don't necessarily understand it all. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And, and the reason I do that is because they very, very rarely have let me down. 
Right. One place I thought they were extremely successful was the the Living Seas. Um, I think they they kept the, uh, and you may disagree, I think they kept the integrity of the original vision, but they added to it. And I, I think it's more enjoyable now than it was originally. Is that the one that had, that has Nemo in it now? Or am I thinking mm-hmm. of a different yeah. one? Okay. Well, what's, what's interesting about that is I think that that represents sort of a swap of a sort. Like in its original incarnation, the clan, the, um, the hydro, the hydrolator, and the um, the vehicle, the sea cabs, I think they were called, were the pre-show, and the main show of the seas was the aquarium and the exhibits. Now it almost feels for some people that the ride, where you go through the Nemo story, is the ride, and the exhibits and the aquarium are the post-show. Yeah, I can see that. Which is kind of weird, right? Because originally it was, let's go into this and learn about manatees and see the fish and go see the tank and all that cool stuff. And now I suspect a lot of people do the ride and then walk through that and don't even pay attention, which is a shame because it's still very, very cool. Well, right? it, it it feels like the um, at the ending of Spaceship Earth in a way, in that, in that same fashion now, right. where right. when you get off and you do all of the different uh, interactive things. Right. And I, I, I think I agree, I agree with you that I think they maintain the spirit of the place. I just think the guests experience it in a slightly different way now um, for whatever reason. You know, maybe maybe the, the messaging isn't as clear that there's this very cool aquarium to see. And, you know, I mean, that tank at the time and for a long time was the largest saltwater tank in the world. That that tank actually is big enough for Spaceship Earth to fit inside it. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> I'd like to see that. I think that should be the next renovation. <laughs> well, and you know, actually, stick so, it in there. Uh, when we went, my wife and I went uh, first in '93. When we went back in 1995 to celebrate my parents' 40th anniversary, when we were there, we actually did a behind-the-scenes um, tour, a special thing called it was called Disney's Deep, and it was about dolphin education, and it was a, a uh, the thing they were doing about communicating with dolphins where they had this big sort of, they called it a keyboard, but it was really this big structure that had 3d objects within these little wells. <clears throat> and the wells had um, a laser beam, like an infrared light across it. And when the trainer poked his hand into it, it set off a particular sound that told the dolphin to go to a particular area to grab a fish or a thing and so they were actually communicating with the dolphins and we got to understand we went backstage to see how it worked we um even got to participate and help in a training session when they were doing we had clipboards and we were keeping track of the trainer told bob the, the male dolphin to go get this thing and did he get it and we were trying to keep up with it all it was very very cool um so yeah i i, so I agree with you that um i think they introduced characters maintain the original sort of intent I, I i do think some guests don't take advantage of all there is to see inside the seas part of it mm-hmm. i was lucky enough to be in a summer music program with the university of central florida um and i was um part of a it was a very small group we got to actually go to mexico at epcot center and we got to hang out with the mariachi and um you know, explore that, which is probably my favorite um, land in Epcot Mm -hmm. is because of the transformation that you're outside, you're inside, but you're outside at night. Yeah. um, Which I really love. And and you got, we got to go up into the, um, 
into the buildings um, on the second floor there. It was, it was always, it's always really neat to see that. And it doesn't detract from the experience it adds to it. Right. Yeah. I think another pavilion that does that indoor outdoor thing well is uh, Germany, actually, when you go into the beer garden. <laughs> we did that. We did that when our kids were little. We did. We actually went to Disney on Christmas Day, and we wow. had Christmas dinner at Germany. Do you remember, oh, okay. do you remember the? Do you remember the, when they said, "Is it anyone's birthday?" There was this guy that I think was bordering on drunk that kept going, "Jesus, it's Jesus's birthday." Because <laughs> it was actually Christmas Day. I think that's as drunk as you can be at Disney. I don't know if he was all the way there, but he he was he was loosened up a little bit. <laughs> You know, another another thing that I really like about Disney, and I, I, you mentioned this in the Imagineering Pyramid, uh, Animal Kingdom, when you're walking, uh, the one of the things that jumped out at me as a the long shot and the close shot, and actually popped in my mind when I was reading the description before you even brought this up, but it's the Tree of Life and Animal Kingdom. Because mm-hmm. you first walk in, you think, wow, that's a big tree. And then you walk a little more and go, that's a really big tree. And then you go, wait, there are faces carved into it and animals. And like, there's so much more to it than you see from That's the distance. That's not a tree. Mm-hmm. But you're looking at it for what it probably takes you a few minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, you right. see it from pretty far away and it just gradually, like every time you get a little closer, it gets a little more ornate. And, a, and, uh, yeah. and then you get up to it. It's just larger than life. Yeah, that's a, it's a, <clears throat> that's a really good example of that principle. And it's just cool. And, you know, the last couple times I've been there, I find myself standing in front of the tree, uh, past the bridge, right in the area, right in front of the tree, just kind of like open jawed, like uh, just staring at it. And I <clears throat> try to get a good picture. And it's just one of those things you can, you know, that in the castle, there's things you can just stare at for probably an hour and not get be bored, you know. It's very, very cool. Well, Lou, we appreciate you joining us um, for this special episode of Live from Bar Save. Um, it's been fun. Um, and, and we boarded out. We went outside the borders of Bar Save a little bit. That's right. Okay. That's that's okay. <laughs> um, when um, do you have a planned release date for the second book in your series on the Imagineering tools? Uh, I really hope it's soon. I'm working on. Um, so I finished the, the, this book goes into the process and I finished the chapters on the process. And now I'm sort of exploring examples of the process and I'm going to do the game design. Well, right now I think I'm going to do the game design, instructional design and management and leadership chapters again. Um, but right now I'm in the middle of a chapter exploring um, how this process sort of plays out in, in different examples and not to suggest that it was used deliberately, but to look back at a, at certain projects or projects, uh, uh, things and how the principles of the process sort of came into play. Um, uh, so I'm hoping it'll be soon. I, I'm really targeting the fall. I mean, it was supposed to be done already, but unfortunately my publisher has been very uh, gracious in allowing me some more flexibility. Um, well, we'll definitely I'm, put links on our site when it's available. And uh, for anyone that isn't familiar with uh, Lou's book, The Imagineering Pyramid, we will put a link on um, in the show notes, but you can get it on Amazon. Yeah, it's available in both print and uh, Kindle format. Yeah, I have it on Kindle. We should mention also, as Lou said earlier in the episode, 
Um, he is on our uh, on our forums, not forums exactly, but our comments section on our website on just about every episode. So if anybody has any questions for Lou about Earthon or about Imagineering or any of this, um, I'm sure if you put a question on there, he'll see it and reply. Now you have to because I've said you will. So. Yeah, and you know what? Right. Well, and that, and that's fine. In fact, you know, if anyone wants to reach out to try to find me, I'm on Facebook as Lou Prosperi. I'm on Twitter at Lou Prosperi. Um, I think you should do some master classes at the parks, you know, would, and just do walk through. I mean, like I'm first in line. Yeah, I would love to do that. In fact, um, well, so, it's funny. One of the I, I've thought about. So I wrote the first book, you know, with this idea of uh, taking the principles out of the parks. But in some of the feedback I've received, I realized it's actually a pretty cool guide to how the Imagineers do what they do for the parks, just the parks themselves, aside from the, the basic, you know, the underlying principles, just understanding how the parks work and how the Imagineers design them. So I've thought about writing a, um, a version of the, or another book that basically explores use, looking at these same principles, but more just as more examples of their use in the parks and how the, how the Imagineers do their thing. Um, but yeah, I would love to do a sort of an Imagineering pyramid tour of Magic Kingdom. That could be very, very cool, right? And if I lived in Florida, I would. Excellent. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, one thing I do need to mention real quick is that Earthon is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a copyright challenge or a trademark challenge. This is a fan work, and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. I'm Rachel. I'm Chad. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Lava Monkey Games, and Chad is at Chad Lair. C H A D L A R E. And we will see you next time. All right. See you later. Thank you. Bye.